It's a five-star podcast. Because we do it. What's real? What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of the What's Real podcast, episode 173. I am your host, Ed Demko, along with my co-host, cohort, co-conspirator, co-contributor, and my co-tag team championship partner in podcasting, the J himself, Jerry Bajoris. What's going on, the J? Oh, your boy, the Jay's ready. Hey, yeah, for the double R question mark, 173. The veins are pulsating. The striations are gleaming. I am ready to go, and you'll go through it, hey, Ed, but I got to shout it out here at the open. It's day of the dead day here at the What's Real podcast, so how can I not be pumped up for that? As pumped as bud. For the What's Real podcast, let's do it, hey, you Absolutely. We have a loaded show for you this week. Uh, We are going to take a look at the first half of the brand new show on Netflix called Quarterback, all about three NFL quarterbacks, trials and tribulations through the last NFL season. Uh, That'll be interesting. We're going to take a look at the the first four episodes of that. Uh, We are down to the season finale of the last drive-in with Joe Bob and Darcy. And we're talking a zombie double feature. First up from 1974, The Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue. And then from 1985, as the J already mentioned, Day of the Dead from our favorite on here on the show, George A. Romero. Uh, I promise you guys on this, uh, we do a lot of movie reviews and stuff on this show. And the J, I know that uh, you would agree with me on this. Wait until the segment for Day of the Dead, guys, because I have a lot of direct connections to that movie through the years so i have some cool shit that i'm going to talk to you guys about uh as far as that goes and of course we're going to have a foray into the world of professional wrestling with the dark side of the ring another episode this week all about abdullah the butcher and of course we're going to be talking about some goofs and much much more so let's get into it the jay how the hell you doing man good hey ed the summer is rolling along and we are closing out the month of july as sad as that is in a lot of ways, but I know you're talking with you, you're kind of almost over the summer in a lot of ways. Yeah. Cause I mean, we, we've been busy. I know both of us, I mean, speaking for myself personally, I got real busy uh, towards the end of this month. So it's just been nonstop. And then you have to fit in so many things on the weekend. And, you know, as I always say, and consistently say on the show, I'm very blessed and I'm very grateful. I get to do what, what I do, but yeah, the weeks are, are pretty brutal. Um, but yeah, this, this weekend we had beautiful weather here in Pittsburgh, which can be a rarity. So you got to take advantage. And I took the kids to the pool all day Saturday and then shout out to my good friend, Pete. He had us over his house uh, where he has an in-ground pool and we swam Sunday too. So it was a, a pool weekend he had with the kids. So can't complain there, but you know, it is flying by and uh, I'm, I'm kind of with you. I'm ready to kind of wrap up the summer and, and prepare for the fall and everything that goes on in those months as well. Yeah. It's weird, man. Like I feel like I got more out of summer in June like it, I was just doing more shit and everything. And like, not that I'm not doing anything now, but it's just, I feel like since like the 4th of July, I've pretty much just been busy constantly, uh, which kind of sucks because that was the last time I had time off work too. So, uh, but you know, it is what it is. Uh, hit up a barbecue this weekend, basically with some friends, which was a good time, of course. But uh, the weekends go fast, the weeks go slow. And uh, you know, it's uh, it's pretty annoying. You know, that that's how it goes, but that's how it is. And, uh, you know, we're going to be barreling ass here into the fall in no time. 
Yeah, football season starting, so uh, we're starting early this year with this yeah. uh, Netflix documentary, Quarterbacks, because it goes perfectly into Hard Knocks, because we're going to break up the eight-episode season of Quarterbacks into two segments, so we'll have the first four episodes in this episode, and then we'll complete it next week, and then the following week uh, starts Hard Knocks, so uh, that goes hand-in-hand with the preseason as well, so the NFL has officially begun pretty much here on the What's Real podcast. Yeah. We always love that. Uh, one thing I did want to ask you here in the the kind of shoot the shit that we've been doing, hey, Ed, we, we brought it up briefly, but did you see that Hulk Hogan was a guest on comedian Theo Vaughn's podcast this week? I did, yeah. I didn't get a chance to listen to a lot of it, but I was listening to some of it, and it was like already the, the bullshit meter was going off. I, the I, was, I texted you. I was cracking up the first five minutes. He's talking a little bit about Ric Flair and Harley Race, and he mentions how they used to do Broadways, and he says, you know, Broadways, brother, like they'd be wrestling for two hours. I'm like, here you know, we go. <laughs> th- that that kind of reminds me too. I don't know if you've noticed this or not. Like, uh, I've seen like a handful of things with Hogan through like the last, I don't know, handful of years, WWE stuff, shit like this, right? And it's pretty much been consistent with him. Like he concedes the best of all time is Ric Flair. Like. Pretty consistently, like I said, like I've heard him say it numerous times. And that was like one of the first things that him and Theo Vaughn were talking about. And he pretty much said, like, Flair's way better than me. Like Yeah, he gives he gives Flair his props. And then of course he tells the story about Flair waking up out of his coma and asking him for a six pack and so which I actually think is a true story. I mean, it's kinda hard to to tell with Hogan half the time, but you know how that goes. I believe it with Flair. That yeah, that's kind of my point, I guess, with it too. So, uh, but yeah, I mean, if you guys are interested in that, you know, it's it whether it's bullshit or not, it's it's always a good time. Plus, Theo's. You that's know. the thing, the dynamic between him and Theo. That's that's what made me jump on it. I mean, Hogan could be on whatever, and it's kind of yeah, like, and eh, I might not maybe listen. Right. It's like maybe if depending on the format, I'll listen. Maybe not. But with Theo, right away, I'm like, oh god, because Theo's just funny, and he does get uh, Hogan cracking up a lot with with you know his antics and all that. Just the way Theo is, it's a funny funny dynamic. But yeah, it was it was an interesting episode. I'm probably close to the end of it. I got probably through three quarters of it, and it's definitely entertaining because uh, you know podcast consumption for me is when I'm working, just on in the background, or, or when I'm driving. You know how it is for me. Hey, Ed, I'm always in the car. So it's it's always entertaining to throw on shit like that and, and see what's up. And Hogan did not disappoint on Theo. It was pretty funny. And, dude, I wanted to ask you about something. I was reading this article uh, over the weekend where they were talking about, um, like, there's been a lot of shuffling going on at ESPN. Like, the last six months, they've been getting rid of a lot of on-air talent and stuff like that. So uh, but uh, the people at Disney are considering a strategic partner for ESPN. Uh, according to Bob Iger, who we've talked about uh, just a few weeks ago, as far as the the writers and actors strike uh, go, he's the CEO of Disney. Um, but he said that him and, and Jimmy Pitaro, who's the head of ESPN, have held early talks about bringing professional sports leagues on as minority investors, including the National Football League, National Basketball Association, and Major League Baseball, according to people familiar with the matter. So ESPN has held preliminary discussions with the NFL, NBA, and Major League Baseball about a variety of new partnerships and investment structures. Uh, in a statement, an NBA spokesperson said, we have a longstanding relationship with Disney and look forward to continuing the discussions around the future of our partnership. Um, which is kind of weird uh, 
to think that quote unquote the worldwide leader of sports would be directly in bed with these companies uh, as far as an investment thing. So like the professional leagues are going to be able to tell ESPN what they are going to do with their products. Um, and it's also kind of a conflict of interest too, uh, because you know the NFL, for example, is going to have a lot less uh, need or want to do business with other networks. Now, if that's the case, because they're directly invested in one, which would be ESPN or ABC, which Disney also owns. Um, but I didn't know if you heard anything about it. I think it's kind of like a conflict of interest thing. But it's we're getting to like it's one of the last few things that we haven't seen really go the way of streaming yet with the way that sports is still presented on TV. But it's clear that it's it's heading that way. Yeah, it's just these companies here in the U.S., it's kind of going above and beyond that monopolies aren't allowed and just loopholing it and just getting so goddamn big. And we've talked about on the on the show before with like Apple being worth a trillion dollars now as opposed to billions. And these things are just growing and growing and growing. And ESPN and Disney, as we know, just huge corporate entities. And to me, it's just ESPN wanting to be the hub of all live sports streaming. You know, it's like, Pretty let's much. just rule the, rule the world. And that's kind of what have, it is. They already have shit like UFC lined up. Um, you know, and if obviously if they get in bed with these uh, with the major sports leagues, then they're going to be the ones that are funneling out, you know, Sunday ticket and MLB TV and, you know, whatever NBA thing that there are, too. So, um, yeah, there, there's going to be a lot of different changes with stuff like this. And especially, too, as streamers like Disney Plus and, and Netflix and all these other companies are trying to get the leg up on their competition, because face it, the, the prices are rising with streaming which is probably not a good thing. And the only way that a lot of them are going to be able to justify it is to be able to offer more product for the money. And obviously the one that wields professional sports leagues is going to wield a lot of power because frankly, sports are massive in the United States. Right. And and it's going to be different for each organization too, because every organization is going to have different strategies, different wants, different needs. And things yep. like that between the NFL and NBA. And, and one of the things that, that I had been reading was that talks with the NFL and ESPN and Disney and everything have occurred in conjunction with the league's own de- desire for a company to, to take state in its media assets. Yep. So, you know, you're talking the NFL network, NFL.com and Red Zone and yep. things like that. So, you know, that all goes into it. And then the NBA and Disney have potential structures around a renewal of media rights and Disney and Warner Brothers Discovery have exclusive negotiating rights with the NBA until next year. So from the outside looking in and, and not being some expert on this, just talking here on the show, hey, Ed, it seems like something that's going to be pretty complex. And, and that's why it's kind of initial talks and just ideas. And, and the key word here is pl- preliminary. But nonetheless, I feel like if this does go into fruition – I don't know. I don't know how it would be, but to me, it doesn't feel like it'd be a good thing for consumers and sports fans for ESPN to basically be the the leader in every single thing. Yeah, I don't I wouldn't want that. You know, I don't think that ESPN particularly has better coverage of those sports than the other networks that, you know, like I think Turner Sports does really good with the NBA 
And I don't want to see in any particular way or reason like losing inside the NBA with like Shaq and Barkley and Kenny Smith and them. Um, I don't think that ESPN, you know, has better coverage of football than, you know, CBS and, and Fox and NBC and, and, you know, the the bigger networks. Um, so, yeah, it's just not something I'm interested in as a fan of those particular sports either. Like, I just... I think the model that they have now where there's numerous entities involved is probably the thing that keeps the coverage the best and keeps everything fair and makes it so that, you know, these these sporting leagues aren't always behind a paywall for people, too, because that's another really important thing. Right. And you mentioned if, if the future is streaming, look at kind of uh, a sample with Thursday Night Football going to Amazon this year. And most people that I know, you know, my friends that are sports fans on social media and stuff and just talking to friends, most people didn't like the coverage on uh, Amazon and the presentation. And, and I'm very curious to see where this goes, too, because I don't know how improved Amazon's coverage is going to be for the Thursday night games. But I do know that they're scheduled to get a lot better games. So it's not they're trying to make it so it's not a very skippable night of football. Um, they're going to put marquee games on Thursday nights. So, you know, with that being said, we might be watching them more than we did in the past. But, you know, I've forever maintained this, and maybe that's just me being old school or just old, but I don't like Thursday nights for football. I just don't. I, it's not a night where my mind generally goes to football. Um, I've always kind of maintained that like, that's what the weekend in general is for because forever it's always been Fridays, high school, Saturdays, college, Sundays, professional football. Um, so, you know, I like the Sunday night games. I like Monday night football, but I just don't see the need for football to be on Thursday nights. I mean, I get it. The NFL's greedy and they, you know, it's an opportunity for them to make billions of dollars off just one game per week, but it doesn't mean that I have to like it anymore. Right. Yeah. And, and, and kind of summing things up, the CNBC article that I had was saying that superficially, this would all make sense because, or I'm sorry, it would may, may make less sense for the NBA, NFL, and MLB, which signed lucrative media rights deals with many media partners. That's kind of what we're breaking down here. And that's what fuels team revenue and player salaries with a, a range of media companies. So you're taking that away because for ESPN – there's no better partner for sports contact than the leagues themselves. So yep. I understand that. And then it goes to say, go on to say what I was kind of alluding to earlier in the conversation. Hey, Ed, where the conflicts of interest come in because professional sports league facing um, a minority stake in ESPN. So owning a stake in ESPN, my, my irate Disney's competitors. So you're talking about Comcast, NBC, Universal, Fox, Amazon, Paramount, Global, Apple, and, and these are all things that help make the leagues billions of dollars by participating in bidding wars for sports rights. So, I mean, there's there's a lot to it, and and there's just going to be a lot of hurdles for Disney and ESPN to really take over, you know, the three major sports leagues in the United States. Yeah, and I know it's a little bit different for the other sports leagues, but I don't think it makes a whole lot of sense for the NFL to shore up their partnership with with one network making themselves in turn less visible because there's no doubt that the, the National Football League is the biggest league in, in sports now, uh, especially in the United States. So, uh, the, you know, they're probably not going to go out of their way to alienate 
different network. Like you were saying, like half of those people or all of those people, that would just be really a bad idea on their hand. So, uh, I mean, it's going to be interesting to see where they go with it, but I just don't, I don't see it. I could see maybe like baseball or somebody doing that, but like, like I don't think the NFL is going to be involved at the end of the day. And I most likely don't think uh, the NBA is either. And you don't hear any inkling of the NHL here because they're obviously the, the fourth league in America by far. And they might even be below golf and stuff at this point. So, um, you know, I, I don't think that's something that they would be interested in. I think they would rather just keep the NHL on a, contracted basis just to show the games like they do now and that's it right and with anybody wondering where this might come from too um you know millions of of americans cancel cable each year you know we we know the term cut the cord and that's a a big thing and in this article it goes on to say that the trend finally ended last quarter according to people familiar with the matter accelerating cancellations have now overwhelmed fee increases and we've talked about that hey and all these things keep going up in price too Netflix, you know, uh, I know went up Disney plus. So, uh, you know, this all goes into linear TV revenue outside of advertising, which has begun to decline. And Iger would go on to say that a lot has been said about renting sport sports, right. Versus owning. So you could see that too. Like he goes on to say, if you can rent it and continue to be profitable from renting, which we have been, and we believe we will continue to be, then there's value in staying in it. So he goes on to say it's not just about the live sports coverage of the leagues, the teams. It's also about all of the shoulder programming it throws off on ESPN and what you could do with it in a streaming world. So, you know, they're kind of playing different cards with what's been thrown at them with the trends of American consumers with cutting cable and and kind of, you know, households just picking and choosing the services they have and and a lot of cancellations. You know, we talked about Netflix losing a hell of a lot of subscribers over the past year or two. Yeah. I mean, that's, they're always fighting to keep customers. Um, and it's something that's been going on since a lot of other streaming service services popped up besides Netflix. Cause there was a time period where Netflix had the, the complete gamut of everything. Um, but yeah, it's getting more watered down and diluted. It's, it's, you know, like they're always looking for an advantage over each other. Um, and that's exactly where stuff like this is getting viewed at. And obviously with, you know, Disney having Disney plus, they're trying to sew up this for themselves, most likely with ESPN. Um, and that's going to be able to increase either a streaming first ESPN, or if ESPN would just jointly join up with Disney, then they'll offer you another package. It's, it's basically going like streaming is turning into its own form of cable with different packages and different things like that. So it's going to kind of fuck off its own, you know, purposefulness eventually um, because it's going to make people, you know, be like, fuck this and go back to stuff like cable, especially if cable would considering lowering its cost. And if ESPN, for example, would leave cable and go to a streaming only type thing, uh, the price of cable is going to come down because ESPN is one of the most expensive you know, channels for cable companies to have access to um, because of the sports stuff. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see how this plays out because it could really affect multiple different industries at the same time. And I'm not even just talking about television stuff. I'm talking about the sports leagues themselves, gambling, commercials and advertising. Where's the Super Bowl, for example, going to be shown every year? Like is instead of it fluctuating through different networks, is it just going to be on ABC every year? Like stuff like that. So 
Uh, it could be, you know, either something that doesn't really materialize into much, or this could become like one of the biggest things that's happened in the history of sports. Right. Yeah, and summing it up on my end, hey, Ed, while striking a deal with professional sports leagues won't be easy, as we've been discussing, Disney does appear to be pushing the envelope on its thinking to prepare for a streaming-dominated world that includes its full portfolio of sports rights. So that's what it really comes down to. There you go. So we, we will keep an eye on that, of course, as we do tend to cover sports uh, on the show from time to time. And we are up against our very first commercial break, and whenever we come back, we're going to continue covering sports as we're going to take a look at the very first four episodes of Netflix's new show, Quarterback. So stay tuned for that and much more. We'll be back right after this right here on the What's Real Podcast. Join us next week for episode 174 of the What's Real Podcast, where we have part two of our look at the brand new Netflix series, Quarterback. And on Dark Side of the Ring, we take a look at the latest episode all about Bam Bam Bigelow. Then it's a rarity here at the Woods Roll Podcast with a new film drop review. It's Netflix's new sci-fi bender, They Clone Tyrone. Hi, this is Herman James with the Woods Roll Podcast. If you guys have been listening, my brother is in a lawsuit with Hey Ed after getting super kicked last week, so I'm kind of taking over the reins for a little bit, which I haven't been able to do anything for a while, so I'm pretty excited, actually. I'm here representing Goose and Goose for episode 174, where the guys talk about things like moms hiring hitmen to kill their three-year-old sons, cocaine sharks, long orgasms where the girl's like, uh, uh, uh. Goose and Goose is always funny. Listen for Goose and Goose. Jesus Christ. All that and much more next week on episode 174 of the What's Real Podcast. And we're back, and it is time to take a look at the brand new Netflix series, Quarterback. Uh, There's eight total episodes. We're going to take a look at the first four this week here on the show. And, of course, it is all about the 2022 season's of quarterbacks Patrick Mahomes, Kirk Cousins, and Marcus Mariota. Uh, The very first episode is titled The Quest. Uh, Mahomes and the Chiefs put away a rival. Mariota makes his Falcons debut, and Cousins acknowledges his time is growing short. Um, Of course, this is like, you know, the, the whole concept of it, for those who might not understand, is Patrick Mahomes is considered the best player in football, uh, definitely the best quarterback, and he won the Super Bowl this during the season. So they're showing you that. Kurt Cousins is a veteran, uh, never won anything, but he's kind of been there many times. So he's like the guy that's trying to, to win and make it to the top level. And then there's Marcus Mariota, a guy who hasn't really caught on with any of the teams that he's went to, even though he was a first-round draft pick. And he's getting another opportunity, potentially his last, to start again uh, with the Atlanta Falcons. Um, but in the first episode, they kind of just set everything up for you as far as what's going on. Um, they they go directly into the season. They, there's not a whole lot of bullshit uh, prior to that. And they're kind of setting you up for just the introduction of, like, you know, Mariota starting for the first time now in, in a, you know, like a year and Mahomes is on his quest to win another Super Bowl, and Kirk Cousins is trying to get to that level and win his first. And, and off the bat, too, hey, Ed, the Netflix documentary series comes from Peyton Manning's Omaha Productions, and yep. you see why he named his company that, King mm-hmm. Omaha, Omaha. Uh, so they have Peyton Manning, you know, legendary quarterback, kind of spearheading this, which I think really helps because, you know, 
it definitely is looking like, you know, we'll get into it uh, again just at the outset, but it looks like uh, there's some solid NFL reality competition for Hard Knocks here. Because uh, yes. I really, really enjoyed this as as we'll go through. But yeah, my I, my initial takes were uh, they, they're getting full access, which is is something you need to pull something off like this to really stand out, and, and that's what they do here. I mean, you're talking going into these guys' homes. Uh, Mahomes has a, a little baby girl, and his wife's about to. Um, she actually gives birth during this season. Mariota's wife's pregnant, about to give birth during this. Kirk Cousins has a few kids. So you meet all their wives. You know, you see them at home playing with their kids. Uh, it's it's all really cool because you, you can see off the bat with Peyton Manning, you know, again, being involved with this, the guys trust them, and they just give them complete full access. Yeah, I, I'd say that there's been very few things in the history of the National Football League that's given you this type of access, if anything, ever. Exactly. Uh, Hard Knocks is probably the closest to it, but this is far more, I thought, Especially than with Holmes in his prime. Yes, that's the, the key about this, too. Because it's also, you know, like we have this whole series that literally gives you complete behind-the-scenes look at Patrick Mahomes' second Super Bowl winning season. Um, and that's really cool. And, you know, plus for me being a huge football fan, Patrick Mahomes is one of those guys that I really wanted to see this from. So the fact that they would do it with him just kind of, it makes sense. And the, the fact that they're doing it just delivers in a big way because you're really watching, uh, in real time, how the best player in the entire game goes about his life in every facet, football, family, everything. And, and what's really cool as well talk about the Jay and all his pumped upness and everything. Th this is what makes it for me too, is rewatching the highlights of the season and stuff. They put it together in such a cool package yeah. that it's good shit. You know, they, they obviously focus on some of the really close games that the quarterbacks had, uh, you know, the, the fourth episode, uh, the final one we're re reviewing here, Marcus Mariota goes on to say, he's like, that was the wildest game I've ever been in. I, I believe it was Atlanta versus uh, the Titans. Yeah, and it went back and forth, and and they ended up winning in overtime. Uh, the the there was a penalty, and they they got put back. Uh, the Titans did, and they missed the field goal that would have put them. Or I'm sorry, the extra point. It made the extra point like a 48 yard extra point. So yep. they ended up missing and sending it in overtime. So you forget about every single little game. So it's cool to like rewatch that, especially with the packages they put together with like the cool music and the cool yep. shots and the slow motion replays and everything. That, that was a really big aspect of, the, of this that was a positive for me. And they also had kind of a cool angle with uh, Mariota too, because not only was he starting for the first time in well over a year, but he was also starting for a team that just drafted uh, a quarterback, a quarterback yep. that is somebody that they most likely would want to push in the future. So how is Mariota going to respond to that too? So uh, that was also pretty cool. And of course, Kirk Cousins, somebody that I've been pretty vocal about on the show uh, over the years, not being a big fan of. Uh, I actually kind of like him a lot after this um, because they kind of portray him too as just like a normal family guy, but until it comes to football. Um, he's very obsessive over the game. His life wholly revolves around the sport. Um, he's fully aware of what he's doing and, you know, like how he would like to be remembered and everything else. And, you know, football has been such a big part of his life too uh, that it's interesting to kind of see that aspect of it as well because Kirk Cousins is a good NFL player, but he's not 
Patrick Mahomes. So you're going to see the trials and tribulations as the season goes on. And I thought that was also like another really good angle to have this as well. While I was at the the action portion that I was talking about with the highlights and the way they put it together, another big thing with obviously this being all about the quarterbacks, man, they, they expose some of the hits that they take. Oh, it's brutal. Like there, there was the one, I forget who it was that, that sat cousins just destroyed him. And he just says, you'll be all right. <laughs> to him. He got yep. the wind knocked out of him, you know, because the guys come in, he's like, just give me a second. I got the wind knocked out of me. So well, that, that kind of stuff is great. Don't worry. We'll get into that in a minute because that comes about in the third episode of the season. So in the second game, it's called Homecoming, a matchup between two leading AFC teams results in a tough loss for Mahomes and Cousins hopes to extend the Viking streak against his former team. Uh, of course, they're showing you a big loss for the Chiefs early on in the season. Uh, and they're also talking about Kirk Cousins playing against Washington, uh, which was his former team, uh, something that he was looking forward to do too because he hasn't been back to Washington uh, frequently since. But they kind of get into that whole thing about like why he likes to come back there and things like that with his family. And, you know, uh, it, it, another interesting outlook for a game. But then a lot less, by the way, with Marcus Mariota this time around, which is going to be kind of a theme of the season, but we can get into that as it moves on. Yeah, and that, and that's the thing. When you're following three different subjects, it's going to depend, you know, especially obviously in, in documentary form, it's going to depend on what's going on, you know, so it does bounce around a bit, but I thought the pacing was good regarding that. Yeah, they did a pretty good job with it. It's not like they didn't come back to Mariota or anything like that. And it felt, too, like they were spending the most time on the stuff that you genuinely wanted to see the most of. So it didn't feel like a waste of time or like, oh, what are they doing with this now? Like, no, it's that's you You would rather, frankly, see more Mahomes and, and Kirk Cousins than you would Mariota anyway, because their teams are significantly better than his, too. And, and some of the people I was talking about, you know, our friends that, that like football, we were talking about this. And a common theme was people saying like, yeah, and Marcus Mariota of all people. And I'm like, you can't have all star guys. It's going to be interesting no. to see kind of a random quarterback. I mean, he's still a starting NFL quarterback. Uh, like you said, a first round pick. He, he's a football pedigree. He, he's not, he hasn't been a huge winner, but he's obviously a really good quarterback. And, and he brings a uniqueness between the three you know every, all three of them bring different personalities and different lives into the fold and it makes it really interesting absolutely so they, they have different outlooks for everything in the game and and that's kind of cool to get that and then that's what we get in the third episode it's called kings of pain ahead of a game with the defensive powerhouse mahomes reveals his strategy for not getting hit too hard and the vikings face a tall order against the bills and this episode is really about the beating that they take, about how they take care of their bodies, about the different ways that they, you know, recover from injuries and things like that. And that's something that I thought was interesting too, uh, especially because, I mean, you know that the guys take punishment, uh, but seeing it in real time is much different. Also, whenever it comes to um, their workouts and stuff like that, that was really interesting too, especially because exactly. yeah. this is where they introduce you to Mahomes' trainer for the first time, who he's been his trainer since fourth grade. Um, they do a lot of unique workouts and things pertaining to his game and what he does on the football field. It's not just like lifting weights and running around. Um, and that to me 
is extremely interesting when, again, you're talking about Patrick Mahomes, the best player in the game today. That's exactly what you want to see out of this. And I'm really happy that they showed that stuff because they could have easily kind of like made it look that way and then they don't really get into it a whole lot, but they really get into a lot of it. They talk to his trainer. They spend a lot of time in the gym with them and show you exactly what he's doing and everything. And I just thought that was incredibly interesting. Going right into that, hey, Ed, was Kirk Cousins off-field stuff along the lines of the unique training of Patrick Mahomes where, you know, Kirk Cousins just comes off, like you mentioned, this nice guy, family guy, but he's a, you know, just like kind of Brady-esque. This is why he's an NFL quarterback is he is super competitive in his competitiveness and intensity. And And he's smart. They they showed that viral moment he had in in Washington, you know, early on in this season. That you like that, like you like that, you like that. He he had the big win, and so you see that. And and going into that is his dedication to doing everything, mentally and physically. And for mental exercises, he does that neurofeedback training. Yep, and, and he talks and then, to the team psychologist. And yeah, stuff like exactly. That. And then physically, you know, he does the intense cold tub and, and massage therapy that we know. And, and like you said, that's just just really cool to see like they're what what they do to put themselves together as elite NFL quarterbacks. And and then going with that too with Cousins was uh, at one point. Well, you know what? It was all three of them. Uh, and I'm sorry, I kind of lost my place on like what, what episode this was. But the just while I'm, one, that's the well, third. just while I'm spewing here, uh, as far as thinking of this, it's it's when the producers of the documentary had them go through their play calls and from memorization, and they'd yep. be like Y flat Z, and then they showed like Marcus Mariota, his wife works with them, and she'll like quiz them. And that's he, it's the, just, that's the next episode. Okay. Games. Okay. So I don't want to skip around too much. So we'll get there, but yeah, the, all that stuff's cool. But yeah, just back, back with uh, how they take care of themselves. Uh, just very interesting. And, and you know me, man, just being a, a lifelong fitness guy, you kind of take some tips from them. Like, oh, I gotta maybe start doing some stuff, you know, in my own way that's along these lines. Yeah. And they show you also too, that Kirk cousins always takes off on Tuesday, which is kind of unheard of for quarterbacks, but he doesn't do anything on Tuesday, but hang out with his family. Uh, he's an avid reader, which doesn't, shouldn't be too surprising for an NFL quarterback. They're all pretty smart. Uh, and, you know, memorization and, and main, mind training and things like that are definitely high on the list for Kirk Cousins and how, you know, it's not just how they prepare their bodies. It's how they prepare their mind. It's how they prepare for games uh, and how they like to spend their downtime as well because they even show Patrick Mahomes and his wife uh, going through their new home that they're having built. Uh, which is fucking insane, by the way. That place, yeah, yeah, in in Kansas City, and they talk about that kind of stuff, too. And then it goes into the fourth episode, Mind Games, an incredible throw, Ice is a Vikings win. Mahomes admits he's not much of a scrambler, but it pays off in a tense game, and Mariota might be turning a corner. Uh, So, you know, the Vikings are kind of rolling along here. They're trying to get their footing and it seems like earlier on in the season, they've kind of worked out some of the kinks that they had. So they're rolling on as a team. Uh, Mahomes uh, kind of doing his thing as the team starts to catch fire and start to build up. And then at this point in the season, Mariota actually was playing pretty well. They went back to his hometown of Seattle because uh, he played, uh, well, not his hometown, but like he played in Oregon. So he's familiar with the area. Uh, and then, you know, it kind of like a homecoming for him as well in a game that they were actually able to play well and beat the Seahawks. So, you know, it's kind of looking good for all three of these guys at this point in the season. But then, you know, as we get to the second half of the season, uh, thing, you know, 
as the season rolls along, you see who's legitimate, who's not. Uh, you know, the wear and tear of the game starts to to wear on everybody. And then, you know, you start to see guys excel and guys, you know, basically have their season end too, uh, which we'll talk about next week on the show. But at this point, you know, everything's working along pretty fine. And, you know, it, it, and frankly, I don't know about you, the Jay, but by the fourth episode, I was hooked in pretty well. Uh, I watched this. I watched this in two days, basically uh, watched yeah, four episodes each day. Yeah, I actually started it. I started watching it down at when I was in Deep Creek and my brother-in-law was watching it with me and, and my wife. And she was like, you guys are killing me because we made a joke about Patrick Mahomes, very unique voice sounding like a Muppet. Oh, yeah. yeah which he's hilarious, you know, but th- this is great because this is like the most you've heard Patrick Mahomes talk too. you know, yeah. he's, he's just ridiculously throughout these whole things. And it's just really cool. Like you've been saying is to see the mind state of a 27 year old, like super quarterback. And and one other uh, cool note that I, I wanted to mention in the, the early episodes here was when they were t- doing a tour with Kirk Cousins in his home. And he mentioned like, he didn't want to rub everybody in the, you know, in the face and his family. And he got like, you know, to have, sports yeah, to have his memorabilia everywhere. So he had this like down this hallway, there's a Murphy door hidden memorabilia room and he takes you into it. Now that, that was really cool. Yeah, I'm glad that guys like that have stuff like that in their house. Like, I think that's a neat idea. Yeah. You know, if you don't want to have your shit everywhere, I understand, obviously. Yeah, that's what Hogan, like going that. back to that, of all people, was was saying in that interview. I was surprised. He's like, yeah, these guys have belts and pictures of themselves. I I, I don't have any of that. I was like, Hogan, Which is people. Yeah, but he probably has a warehouse that yeah, has all of, all of his shit in it, knowing him. But yeah. Uh, but yeah, man, the first four episodes of this are really good. Um, I was really, really excited for this to begin with. And at this point in the season, it's definitely delivering, firing on all cylinders. And I was like hooked in really hard. So I really enjoyed the first four episodes. Like we were saying, I I felt like it gave us unprecedented access that uh, the show was kind of promising. And at this point, the show is exactly what, what it promised to be. And I, you know, I really was enjoying it. That's exactly it, Hey Ed. The the combination of the access and how they put it together, it's really well made. So I'm I'm full in on it, and I'm looking forward to talking about the rest of the season on episode 174. Absolutely. So stay tuned for that next week as we're going to break the rest of this down, uh, and it should be a lot of fun as well. And uh, we are going to take another quick commercial break, and whenever we come back, we're going to head on down to the last drive-in for the season finale with Joe, Bob, and Darcy. First up is 1974's The Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue. So stay tuned for that much more. We'll be back right after this, right here on the What's Real Podcast. Hey, Yins, guys. That's right, it's your boy, The J, once again, as the great Chris Jericho used to say, representing the dub R question mark, the What's Real Podcast. And I am here today for local Pittsburgh area independent production company, Churchill Pictures. And the J can admit, for those consistently listening, week to week we have ads for Churchill Pictures. You may be rolling your eyes, but this time, this week, I have a gift for you where you can watch some of our feature films for free for the first time. For those that don't know, Churchill Pictures is based out of Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, established from the bond of two childhood friends. Churchill Pictures envisions creating visual content that is completely original, thought-provoking, and most importantly, entertaining. Check all the information out at churchillpictures.com today. And as I said at the top of the ad, your chance to see their two feature films for free. Just subscribe to YouTube's Churchill Pictures channel. Go to YouTube, 
Subscribe to the Churchill Pictures channel and you'll be able to watch the full feature film, the 2012 Silver Ace Award winner from the Las Vegas Film Festival, Deference. Deference, the full movie, is for free on our YouTube channel. Then our second feature film, The Unsung, is now available for free on Tubi. Tubi is a free streaming site, just has a little bit of ads, but you can get used to them. Check us out on Tubi. All you have to do is register for Tubi, or if you're already registered, go on ahead and sign in on Tubi and just search The Unsung. The Unsung is now streaming for free on Tubi. Check us out today at churchillpictures.com or YouTube deference, Tubi The Unsung, Churchill Pictures. We create worlds. And we're back. We're down at the old drive-in with Joe, Bob, and Darcy for the season finale of The Last Drive-In. First up in the double feature is from 1974 from director George Grau. This is The Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue, a.k.a. Let Sleeping Corpses Lie. Uh, When a series of murders hit the remote English countryside, a detective suspects a pair of travelers when it is actually the work of the undead. Jarred back to life by an experimental ultrasonic radiation machine used by the Ministry of Agriculture to kill insects. Um, This is probably the first zombie movie to come out that 100% follows the lore and everything of George Romero's Night of the Living Dead. Um, that's That was actually the, the hint that Joe Bob gave uh, earlier in the week. Uh, I always liked the whole ultrasonic radiation thing is the reason why the dead were returning back to life. I yeah, thought me it was too. kind of a yeah. cool way of doing it. Um, I also like this movie too because... It's really interesting in the fact that it is a zombie movie, but it's very gothic as far as like, you know, a zombie movie goes, which is kind of a rarity. Um, And it makes it, you know, that much more unique because of it. Um, Ray Lovelock is in this one playing George, who I always like Ray Lovelock too. Um, There's a lot of atmosphere and, you know, but kind of like there's some gore that reminds you of like the stuff that you would typically see in Italian films. Um, and it's a pretty unique film in the fact that it was a Spanish horror film, uh, which there was, and Joe Bob talked about this on the show, but there was a dictatorship in Spain at the time that wasn't very big on horror films. Uh, but if you had the people in the movie getting terrorized weren't from Spain or Spanish descent, they were okay with it. So that's why George Grau essentially went to the English countryside and made this movie. Um, and it worked out, I think, for the benefit of the movie. And uh, I know you haven't seen this one before, the Jay, so I was kind of interested on in getting your input on uh, what you thought about this one. Yeah, it's one of those ones I missed. I heard you talking about it before. It was always on my radar. So as I always say, no better place to, to check it out than with our friends at The Last Drive-In. Uh, I definitely enjoyed it. Um, you know, you had a lot of the notes I had. Definitely liked the atmosphere. That, that was a huge part of it. You know, the old cemeteries and stuff. And I'm going to give it a shot. Hey, Ed, ready? No profanar el sueno de los muertos. God is, bless uh, you. Yeah, there we go. Uh, but yeah, this this was very enjoyable. Uh, the leads are good. Um, I think he mentioned that the the lead actress, Christina Galbo, won a, a, a some sort of a, an award. This, this was like an award-winning film, wasn't it, for the time? 
Yeah, for uh, especially for European stuff. Yeah, I, I think it was all European, but you know, nonetheless, that, that kind of says it all. Uh, but yeah, like you said, I think that's the biggest kind of thing with with let cor- sleeping corpses lie, aka uh, the living dead at the at the Manchester morgue, is the fact that it was that first kind of attempt at specific Romero esque zombies in, in in a film. Yeah, so that, that it, definitely stands out, and and, and I definitely like that about it. it it wasn't like an attempt to to kind of copy that fell short you know like they ended up making their kind of own thing and, and i enjoyed it and they did it in color so right. that's another that's thing a good that, point. that really matters yeah um, that's what joe bob mentioned about american audiences this wasn't too big in america and he was like yeah i was kind of surprised by that because this is a really good take of like as we're saying the romero universe and, and it's, it would be the first zombie film of that ilk with color Yes, and it's also very, very, uh, you know, uh, inspired by European or Euro horror at the time. Uh, it starts slow. It's very atmospheric. That's what I said about like the gothic yeah, horror, definitely which, some slow parts, which Euro horror is perfect at, at doing. But once the movie gets started, it gets moving along, and it, uh, it it's pretty good uh, overall. Like it's just like I said, it's everything you want pretty much in a horror movie. Like there's atmosphere, it's creepy. Uh, they do. Uh, Giannotto De Rossi, by the way, does the special effects, which is uh, somebody we've talked about here on the show before. He's the main uh, special effects artist in most of Lucio Fulci's films. Um, he also did the effects too in uh, 2006's High Tension, uh, with pretty good slasher film as well. And the effects are fucking insane in it. So, uh, you know, this was probably the first gore. Esque zombie movie uh, after Night of the Living Dead. I know a lot of people at the time considered Night of the Living Dead to be a gory film, but it's really not. It's also in black and white. This one's in color. It gives a completely different vibe and feel to it. And uh, overall, it's a, it's just a damn good zombie movie, like for sure. It's if you if you're into zombie movies and you've never seen this one, you definitely need to put it on your list. I, I really like great protagonist. With Arthur Kennedy too, he he makes yeah. you want to hate him. The inspector, you know, as a heel because he doesn't believe Ray Lovelock's character George. He thinks they're fucking crazy, of course. And but but it's one of those ones where it's like he's completely overboard. Like yep. he just hates him so much. He hates yep. George so much and just doesn't believe him. But he's he's kind of a good you know human villain, if you will, for it. You know, helps carry some of the stuff. Uh, there there was one thing I, I wanted to mention with the kills. Hey Ed, uh, this is probably like one of the more infamous kills in, in zombie movies where a zombie tears off a, a chick's boob. Yeah, absolutely. And, and the director I was reading purposely had cast an actress uh, known for having a flat chest in the role. She was yep. like a nurse, like receptionist so that they could put like a fake chest piece there to apply it so they could tear it, you know, for the death scene. But that was really cool. I mean, it's gross, obviously. I want to mention that, but it, it was cool. You know, when you're watching a, a gore zombie movie, you look for cool, gory kills and chick getting her titty ripped off will, will definitely stand out. And because of things like that, the movie also helped gain some notoriety in the 1980s for ending up on the British video nasties list. Yeah, of course. Uh, it was never prosecuted, thankfully, but it was one of those movies that first uh, got on that list. And I think that that's what really helped build its cold appeal around the world. Uh, so that's essentially where the movie, you know, is besides the fact that it's in color and it's also a direct descendant from Night of the Living Dead and Romero's zombie lore. 
Uh, that's all the reasons combined there uh, of why this one's kind of a cult classic. Uh, really good uh, idea to show this one on uh, the, the last drive-in, although I would say that they probably should have played this one second, and I'll get into that, obviously, as we go move along here in our reviews. But uh, but I do like this one. Like I said, it plods along a little bit, but it's just a damn fine zombie flick overall, and I was really happy to see them do this one on the last drive-in. And non non spoiler for the climax and ending, but hand in hand with the Romero comparison, they did stick to like the bleak. Oh ending, yeah, very which dark was, ending. which was really good. I, I I liked it. I thought that was the way to go for for how this movie turned out. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. There uh, comes in at a smooth ninety five minutes, by the way, uh, and it moves along pretty well. Like I said, it, it starts a little bit slow, but there is a build up, which that doesn't really bother me either. I think it pays off enough once it gets moving. Um, but as we do here on the show, the Jay hit us with a tagline for the Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue. So no, no tagline on the poster. The IMDb tagline just says one of the best zombie films ever made. Well, here's one then. They tampered with nature. Now they must pay the price. The Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue. And as we do here on the show, we have a five-star rating scale. So the J, what are you giving The Living Dead at the Manchester Morgue? Going solid three and a half. I liked it a little bit more than you. I'm going to go with four. Um, really solid entry here from the last drive-in finishing out the season. But uh, we are up against another quick commercial break. And whenever we come back, we are going to be breaking down an absolute zombie cult classic from 1985, George A. Romero's Day of the Dead. So stay tuned for that. It's going to be a lot of fun, guys. Don't miss this one. We'll be back right after this right here on the What's Real Podcast. Gross Fest returns in a big way this year, Saturday, August 5th, 2023. We're going to party like Gross Fest 2018 because unlike other conventions, we are sticking with pre-COVID prices. Only $10 a ticket to get in. It's at the Comfort Inn Conference Center, Pittsburgh East. That's the Comfort Inn Conference Center, Pittsburgh East, 699 Road I Road, Pittsburgh, PA, 15235, 412 244 1600 or www.comfortinpittsburgh.com. A one day event with guests, movies, filmmakers, and vendors from 11 a.m. to 7 p.m. Gross Fest 2023. And we're back, and we are once again down at the last drive in with Joe, Bob, and Darcy for the final film of this season, and it's a good one, 1985's Day of the Dead, directed by George A. Romero. Trapped in a missile silo, a small team of scientists, civilians, and trigger-happy soldiers battle desperately to ensure the survival of the human race. However, the tension inside the base is reaching a breaking point, and the zombies are gathering outside. Of course, Day of the Dead is the third film in the original Dead Trilogy by George Romero after Night of the Living Dead and Dawn of the Dead. Uh, and it is an absolute zombie classic, in my opinion. Um, I love this movie. I've loved it since I was a kid. I've had an insane amount of experiences with this movie, not just the movie itself, but I've pretty much met everybody in the primary cast of this movie, uh, except for Ralph Marrero, who plays Rickles, who passed away in the early 1990s. And Richard Liberty, who played Dr. Logan, uh, who also died, I believe, in the late 80s. But Lori Cardill, the 
lead in this movie is Sarah, uh, the daughter of Chili Billy Cardilly here of uh, Chiller Theater fame in Pittsburgh. And of course, the news reporter from Night of the Living Dead. I've uh, met her several times. Uh, Terry Alexander, John, I've also met him. Joe Pilato, who is no longer with us, rest in peace, plays my favorite horror character of all time, Captain Rhodes. Uh, Jarlith Conroy plays McDermott, another person that I've been able to meet. Miguel, Sal- or Miguel Salazar, played by Anthony DeLeo. Uh, Bub Howard Sherman, Gary Clark Steele, John Amplis as Fisher, uh, Phil Kellums as Miller, Tasso Stravakis, Greg Nicotero, uh, and many, many rather famous zombies too, which I'll get into as we move along here. But uh, this one originally was considered to be a major disappointment by fans uh, as they wanted a film very much akin to Dawn of the Dead and Day of the Dead is not that movie. Uh, it was originally supposed to be made for over $7 million until George Romero refused to put out a rated version of it, uh, which shrunk the budget and the script uh, considerably. Um, it was being put out by United Film Distribution uh company and it was put out independently and whenever back in the day if you had an x rating or a non-rated film uh, a lot of the ads for it would get censored and it was hard to get movie times for it uh, day of the dead was not a critical or commercial success it kind of came and went pretty quickly in 1985 in the theaters uh, when at the same time uh, or you know, around the same time uh, return of the living dead had hit theaters and was a pretty big hit uh, this one kind of got buried by that, but it's a movie that through the years fans have come to appreciate as one of Romero's best. Um, this movie is very, very interesting to me, even though it is an ensemble piece and there's a lot less action in it than typical uh, you know, Romero zombie movies up to this point. Um, but without a doubt, this is also Tom Savini's greatest achievement uh, in special effects. The effects in Day of the Dead are absolutely fantastic. They hold up amazingly to this day. And this movie is probably 100% responsible, along with Tom Savini, for creating the special effects that we would see in films for probably the next 25 to 30 years um, before CGI became all the rage. Because this is the movie that Greg Nicotero got his start on. Uh, It also was, you know, one of the first things that uh, Howard Berger uh, and, of course, um, I'm having a brain fart, uh, K&B effects. Uh, Robert Kurtzman, sorry. Uh, they would essentially get together on this. It would also be when guys like John Vulich uh, became special effects people. Everett Burrell um, became special effects people. Um, and they got their start on this movie. And these would these guys would go on to become, you know, heavy hitters. Same thing with Gabe Bartolos, another guy, and Al Magliocchetti, uh, two more special effects artists that kind of got their start through this movie. Um, but, and, you know, this is a 100% a zombie movie, but it's also an effects movie. Um, so sprinkling the gore in with some very unhinged performances, such as Joseph Pilato, uh, you know, you have a pretty entertaining fucking movie here overall. Complete classic. Hey, uh, what can you say? Uh, some of the things I want to mention, great, great breakdown as always. Hey, Ed, uh, being at the last drive-in. Two of the guests that they had did include Lori Cardill and Terry Alexander, uh, which was was really cool. And they had Jarleth, too. And, uh, yeah, Jarleth uh, Conroy uh, made an appearance as well. Uh, so that was cool seeing them on there. Lori, Lori was partaking with uh, one of those Texas beers that 
Oh, Joe yeah, Bob, stars. Yeah, the lone stars that Joe Bob throws down. Uh, so, you know, that added to everything. And, and as you mentioned, man, I mean, not only is this coming from one of our mutual favorite filmmakers, his original classic trilogy, its conclusion basically for for the first three. On, on top of that, the personal connections, because uh, uh, you know, I'm sure. Uh, if those listening have heard past podcasts, uh, Hey Ed has talked about it, but Hey Ed was actually the host of a special feature on a day of the dead Blu-ray release. So you yeah, can maybe talk factory. a little, yeah, talk a little bit about that if you want uh, in further detail. And I actually have the personal connection of being in an upcoming short film that was shot in, uh, in production with the George A. Romero foundation with Lori Cardell. Uh, I wasn't in a scene with her, but I'm in the same film. So, that's a, a really cool um, thing for me uh, personally too. So, you know, we'll have more news about that as it comes in the coming months too, but uh, two personal connections to two Pittsburgh boys that worship Romero in these films. And, and as you mentioned, Hey Ed, I mean, what can you really say? I, I always love day of the dead. I think it's a, a great piece to, to end the original trilogy with night and dawn. Uh, you know, it's a lot different. Like I, that's what I like about the three films, you know, is coming in the same and universe that they are but they're all completely different works yeah and that's really what makes it you know george romero is not somebody that's gonna make home alone 2 you know just like a rehash like we're doing the same yep. thing just in new york and bigger you know it's yep. like these are completely different scenarios and you know completely different casts as you said savini's effects get better and, and you're talking about the third time they're at this and, and a great plot for them to be in the underground bunker in Florida and everything. And, and just the, you know, all the, the problems that the scientists have with the military and Lori Cardell's character, Sarah is just stuck in between and, and the Jamaican John, as, as Terry Alexander said on the last drive in, all that character wants to do is just get the fuck out of there alive. You know, yeah, and everybody and else dude, is arguing. And his speech is one right. of my favorite Tremendous. pieces of the entire movie. That's it's absolutely amazing. Um, now, if you're a fan of George Romero, you're probably familiar with this, but he tends to put uh, like political subtext in his movies and things like that. This movie, of course, takes on the me era of the Reagan administration in the 1980s. Uh, it's also the kind of the breakdown of humanity in the movies. So, and and it also. If you watch the first three movies, it's like when when you're watching Night of the Living Dead, that is the very beginning of the the, the zombie apocalypse. Uh, whenever you're watching Dawn of the Dead, it's it, you know the the monsters are kind of winning at this point, like it's they're kind of taking over, but human beings are still fighting back. Uh, by the time you get to Day of the Dead, this, these might be the only people left on the planet. You don't really know. Um, and also, and this is just for me, I'm a huge George Romero fan. Okay, and Night of the Living Dead was his first movie. He would go on to make a handful of movies after that. Uh, he would kind of get his footing and make the type of movies with the look that he would make them with, starting with the crazies. Uh, but whenever he made Martin, he this was the first time he worked with his ensemble. And by that, I mean that was the first time he worked with Tom Savini. Uh, it was the first movie that he worked with Christine Forrest Romero, his first wife. Um, Michael Gornick, who would become his cinematographer. Uh, Pasquale Buba, who was his editor for many years as well after his initial run. But a lot of the cast and crew were the same, starting with Martin all the way to Dawn of the Dead. Uh, and then with, you know, Night Riders and Creepshow. And then that was the Laurel years, so to speak. 
Uh, and Day of the Dead's always been a really important film for me because it marked the last time that that crew would work together. Um, not everybody would leave and, and go work elsewhere, but most of the cast and crew that he would work with would not fully work with him again after this movie. And it was also the end of the UFDC deal, which is the United Film Distribution Corporation uh, deal. that he, So he signed a deal after he made Dawn of the Dead with them to put out three films, and they wanted Day of the Dead. Uh, he made that the third film because he had two things that he wanted to make previously. He would make his most autobiographical film with 1981's Night Riders, and then he would go on to make Creep Show in 1982 with uh, Stephen King. Um, those movies were not huge commercial successes. Uh, the best that he had at that point, up to that point, is probably Creep Show, um, which did hit the number one in the box office the weekend that it was released. Um, but then he would go on to make this movie, and it was the final movie of that contract with that group of people. So I've always kind of held it in high regard because of that as well. Yeah, great call. Some of my highlights, hey, Ed, are just the characters put together in this. Uh, we could do a whole manifesto on on Rhodes, like you said. I'm right behind you on how much I love Pilato and that role, uh, of course. And you know, we already talked about. Well, Lori. dude, uh, yeah, real quick about yeah. the Pilato character, right? At the time, whenever that came out, I've even seen it before. It's in one of the uh, the background, like the uh, the Day of the Dead, like documentary things on one of the DVDs or Blu-rays. Uh, when this got brought up on Siskel and Ebert, they completely shit all over it. Uh, and one of the big reasons they did that is because of the performance of Joe Pilato. They said he was overacting. He, yes. And I've never seen it that way. I just no. thought that it was a really good performance of a completely unhinged character. And I think that like it's it's one of the most amazing things. I've even gotten to tell Joe Pilato this, who was a super nice guy who really, really, really enjoyed his fans. And he seemed to be really taken back when I told him this. But I'm like, the performance gets better every time I see the movie. It, it really does. Like, it's it's a complete catalyst for the way that everything works. And also, I kind of thought it was a neat throwback. There's two little throwbacks that Romero does in this movie that I love. Uh, and one of them is they play the gonk, which is uh, the, the final music in Dawn of the Dead. And they play it, like, with a synthesizer. They only play it, like, one time, and it's whenever uh, Frankenstein's dealing with the zombies. And the other one is the fact that the the Captain Rhodes character is clearly the villain in the movie besides the zombies themselves. And he's also the giant asshole of the movie. And if you watch Night of the Living Dead, uh, you know, the Cooper character is the giant asshole of the movie. And it just so happens that in both movies, the asshole that has a theory of what to do to stay alive happens to be right. Exactly. And, and we might as well hear while we're at it, hey, Ed, one of the best death scenes in horror history. Oh, gets. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And dude, the, the soldiers in general, yeah, they the all get it pretty, yeah, they all <laughs> get it bad. Like Kellums gets fucking bit his, gets his neck ripped off. Fucking, uh, basically Rickles gives himself up to a zombie horde where he's torn to pieces. So does Tasso like, uh, steel ends up fucking off himself, uh, as he's being cornered yeah, by the zombies. Uh, you know, you see, you know, I love the Ritz, which is uh, McDermott and uh, John's little trailer that they have all set up for themselves away yeah, from cool. the camp. Yep. Um, you know, you have, uh, you know, John Amplis's character gets sacrificed by the soldiers, basically. 
the whole dynamic between Dr. Frankenstein and Bub, which at that point in the series, Bub was considered by far and away the most uh, intellectual zombie that we've ever seen in the Romero universe up to that point. Uh, Stephen King's novel, Salem's Lot, makes an appearance in this one, too, uh, as they're kind of introducing books to um, Bub at one point. And I, and I love when they do the thing with the, the experimentation with the headphones and the music. Yep. And Sherman, Sherman Howard's performance with his reactions just as a he's somewhat great. intellectual zombie. Yes. Yeah. I mean, he's, it's a great performance it's for great. someone who doesn't have any dialogue, too. Yeah, uh, it's, it's definitely... And it's such, I've always thought The Day is such an amazing movie because it really gets through the claustrophobia and just the, the shitty living conditions in the cave uh, that the characters are going through. And it really, really comes across. And it's also very weird because, as you know, the Jay, I've had the opportunity to be in that cave several times at the Wampum Mines. And it's very weird. Uh, it's, it's just a weird environment anyways. Plus you're in a place that looks like you're in day of the dead, which is just bizarre. And you mentioned um, there's, there's like actual lakes down there. Yeah, like I don't think they're, they're dry, they're dry out. now. Yeah. Yes. But see here, here's the thing. So there are it, basically the wampum mine is a mine in wampum, Pennsylvania that houses a lot of things that need to have temperature control. Uh, there are, you know, for example, the the master of Disney's Fantasia's down there. All Simon and Garfunkel's masters are being stored down there. Uh, they have, you know, endless FBI records down there as well. Uh, there's RVs and and like you know, rolling summer carnivals keep all their stuff down there. Some people keep their classic cars down there, and there is office space. And there's also space set aside for like warehousing and shipping and things like that. But there are parts of the mine that have never been developed. And that's when you get to the really interesting part of this. So uh, I had the opportunity to go here a few times, but there was a guy named Skip Dinocchio who worked there for many years. And he also was there whenever they filmed Day of the Dead. He also appears in that uh, that, that feature that I did for the Blu-ray. Um, so he was there and he he's you know knowledgeable about the mine everything about it and there was areas where the mine's not developed that you drive through to get to certain places which we had to do when we were down there for different reasons and there were areas where it would be spray painted on the cave like a street name or a name or whatever with an arrow and they had to put street names to different areas down there and essentially create a mapping system because if you were to get lost down there, they will never find you yeah. if there isn't a way, like a roadway of, of doing things. And it's very weird to be down there. So I was down there in the summertime and the wintertime. And the summertime was crazy because, you know, it's like 90 degrees outside. You go in there and it's basically like 60 degrees and then there are areas of the cave that are literally like damp and like 45 degrees. So you would need to bring a jacket or something with you when you were down there. Um, but it's it's incredibly thorough and massive and makes you feel insignificant as a human being to be down in there. I couldn't imagine what it would have been like to film down there because of just how damp it is. I, it's completely understandable as they talked about on uh, you know the interviews with Joe Bob, how they all got sick. Uh, which I would imagine that that would happen. I would lose my mind down there 
because there is no semblance of time or weather or anything outside of the cave. Um, and once I visited there too, it kind of added to watching the movie because like, I feel like I've been in the bunker where right, they were. Yeah, that's cool. And also a really cool experience too of shooting that behind the scenes thing that we did where I essentially got to scream out the lines of Captain Rhodes and shit in the places where, you know, they happened. Um, I also got to see the area where Captain Rhodes was killed, which we were not allowed to film in because that's also the same area where they house FBI records. Uh, but it was a really, really amazing experience. I had the opportunity to be down there three different times uh, with Scott Goldberg, uh, who's a friend of mine who's also a film director. And he was down there shooting a movie or an investment reel for a movie that he was making years ago called The Three, which happened to have John Amplis and Laurie Cardill in it. So I got to spend some time in the mine with them as well. Uh, I was there whenever Lori made her first return to the mine since shooting Day of the Dead. Oh, um, she hadn't been back since. Yeah, it was her wow. first time back. Um, so that was pretty amazing. Uh, and, you know, I actually have, it's one of my my prize collectibles, but I have an old Anchor Bay VHS of Day of the Dead that I had signed by Lori in the mine. Um, I also have rocks from the mine too, from when I went there and stuff and a lot of just video and things that I shot when I was down there. It was just a really, really unique experience and very cool and uh, something I'm very thankful to have the opportunity uh, to do. So thanks to Scott Goldberg for that, uh, you know, just an amazing experience. And I made some friends from it through the years, uh, you know, Lori and John are, are friends of mine. So that's really, really a cool thing for me. Uh, who is a hardcore George Romero fan. And it's it just all this stuff together kind of bleeds in of why I love this movie so much. It's, you know, I loved the movie previously, but the fact that I've got to have all these experiences on top of it. Um, so there's a lot of nostalgia whenever I go back and watch this movie. And then to have it pop up on Joe Bob, and he has three of the stars there on set uh, to do his kind of like thorough interviewing uh, this is without a doubt my favorite thing in the season, and it's absolutely one of my favorite things that they've done in five seasons of The Last Drive-In here on Shudder. As we said, really personal, and it makes it yeah. very meaningful. Yeah, because I think Lori and, and Terry on The Last Drive-In mentioned it was like, you know, it could get down to like the 40s and 50s there, and she mentions as well, you can see your breath, and Joe Bob's like, oh, so they had to edit that out. She's like, no, if you pay attention, you know, there's certain scenes where – yeah, it's just what it was. It's not a continuity thing because it was just cold down there. You could see our breath in some shots. And there's bats. Like, yeah. there's bats that just live in there and shit. They won't bother you, but they're there. Well, yeah, because, you know, if you um, listen to the What's Real podcast, we know how to combat, pun intended, bats. Yes, tennis rackets. That's all you need. So, um, but, dude, there's so much cool stuff about this. There's been so many different things through the years uh, about this. There's a really good making of uh Day of the Dead book by uh, author Lee Carr, uh, who's somebody that I've known for years as well. Uh, it's a really good look back and a really thorough uh, look back at Day of the Dead and the people that made it, uh, even some controversial stuff, which is very rare for, for anything George Romero related. Um, but, you know, and this movie too, for me, holds a lot of different, you know, kind of places. Um, it's also one of the movies too that I guess had the most uh celebrity style uh zombies of anything because there was a really famous article written in Rolling Stone about the making of Day of the Dead which the writer was you know on set as a zombie 
And they did that with several things. I know that uh, Donald Farmer did it, and I forget offhand what he was writing for at the time. And somebody that I brought up on the show for you uh, who've been listening since the beginning, uh, Uncle Bob Martin, who is also kind of a a mentor to me in writing, uh, and he was the editor of Fangoria at the time, was invited to the set to be a zombie. And I would show you him just to be like, he's a zombie that you see very quick, but he's very memorable. Uh, so it's like I could show you who he is in the movie, but uh, but another really cool instance uh, of this. And also this movie for me as a kid kind of set off what Fangoria was to me, like the gore magazines and things like that. And, you know, Day of the Dead was a major player and all of that stuff, too. Um, so, you know, this movie just it, it means a lot to me because it's George Romero, but it's also very instrumental in my being a horror fan as a kid and. Uh, where we're from, and then being able to have the experiences, meeting most of these people, going to the mine and having the experience that I did there too. Um, it just kind of makes me even more of a fan of something, if, if that's even possible at this point. But, uh, you know, if you can't tell, I absolutely positively love George A. Romero's Day of the Dead. I'm with you, man. It's great. I just had a, some little tidbits to throw at you just to round things out as we do with the classics. Uh, this is a little bit of trivia that's fun. So all the extras who portrayed zombies in the climax oh, yeah. received for their services just a cap that said, I played a zombie in Day of the Dead, a copy of the newspaper from the beginning of the film, the one that says The Dead Walk, and yep. one dollar. That's all they got. And I had to do this, hey, Ed, because there's so much great dialogue. You got to spew some of them when you were in the cave. But this was one of my favorites. Dr. Logan, a.k.a. Frankenstein, interrupting Rhodes. Is there food? Rhodes, screaming. I'm running this monkey farm now, Frankenstein, and I want to know what the fuck you're doing with my time. The Jay, this you just is this is all just a mouthful of Greek salad to me. <laughs> One of my favorite lines from the movie, by the way. Uh, there's so many of them in this too. Like the, another one that I always got a kick out of is McDermott when they're all at that meeting and they're bitching at him about drinking too much, and he's like, you know, like. It, you know, I'm going to have to stop drinking because before you know it, there's not going to be anything left. And then he's like, but until then, I will be doing my part to fight the good fight in dry rot and rust. As he cheers him with his flask. Yeah, so that's great. And of course, too, that's another funny aspect of this, too. The soldiers have their own weed farm, which I'm like, yep, definitely would be doing. I'd be fucking annihilated the whole time because I'd pretty quickly give up on the fact that we're going to make it through and I'm basically <laughs> yeah. just going to get fucking destroyed until I die. <laughs> yeah, basically, and that's how it is too. Uh, I thought it was pretty interesting. Joe Bob brought up a point uh, with the Lori character, with Lori's character, Sarah, uh, how she's constantly running to the first aid kit to grab pills. And, you know, it, it's, it's not something that's ever been explored, but it's like, is she just taking aspirin? Or all these people down here basically self-medicating too. Uh, there's a lot of really interesting themes. Uh, like uh, the one that I actually asked George Romero about one time was about Miguel Salazar. Uh, if you notice, him and Laura, or him and Sarah in the movie are a couple, uh, but they they are they don't seem like a couple whatsoever. Yeah, you wouldn't be able to tell if you didn't know. So I and uh, Joe Bob brought up the fact that the John and McDermott characters had a lot of homosexual energy going on, which I never seen before. I never thought about that, but I always had a feeling that the Salazar character was gay, and that she was kind of protecting him from the other soldiers. Uh, and I asked George Romero about that, and he said no, 
that wasn't any thought that he had in his head, but he's like, but now come to think about it, like I understand why people would think that way. So like, I kind of like leaving that up to interpretation. That's so cool. I thought that was an interesting way of explaining it too. But this is a movie I've kind of analyzed through and through a million times through the years. I'd be hard pressed to say that I haven't seen this movie at least a hundred times in my life. So that's kind of what happens whenever you see a movie that many times, you start to really, you know, analyze, overanalyze everything that they do in it. But, but yeah, man, absolutely love this one. And it was more than a fitting way to finish off the season. Speaking of which with, with Terry real quick, they, they portrayed John again when on the last drive and set and Joe Bob brought up the homosexual vibes and Terry said to him joking, Oh, well, George did actually uh, throw an idea that he had at me for gay of the dead. Yes. And I thought that was like, that. like a nice little zinger there. But uh, as we do here on the program, the J hit us with a tagline for Day of the Dead. Yeah, a couple good ones, of course, with Day of the Dead. First, there was Night of the Living Dead, then Dawn of the Dead, and now the darkest day of horror the world has ever known, Day of the Dead. And then the other one we have here uh, that's pretty solid, the dead have waited, the day has come. There you go. So... As we do her on the program, we have a five-star rating scale. Not going to be much of a surprise for me. I give Day of the Dead five stars. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Five stars. Can't go wrong with Day, Day of the, the Dead. dead. Yeah, I, I watch this movie a lot. I, the sad thing is I just watched this movie, and I guarantee you this will be on my list at some point in October anyway because yeah, I just enjoy watching great. it. Yep. So, And another fitting season, uh, season five of The Last Drive-In has come to an end with Joe, Bob, and Darcy. Our hats off to you guys over at Shutter. We hope that you can continue on doing the series uh, as you've been doing it. Maybe we'll even have a couple specials uh, before the year is over. And if we do, we'll obviously be talking about them here on the podcast. So we are up against another quick commercial break. And whenever we come back, we're going to enter the world of professional wrestling. Another episode, episode, no, episode, episodio of Dark Side of the Ring. This time, all about Abdullah the Butcher. So stay tuned for that. We'll be back right after this, right here on the What's Real Podcast. Hey, everybody. This is Herman James with the What's Real Podcast. Finally giving me something to do here. It's been a while since I talked to you guys, but I'm actually helping them out doing an advertisement for advertisers. That's right. If you would like to advertise here on the What's Real Podcast and join the team, just shoot us an email today. We got cheap, easy, and affordable rates, and we can hook you up with some kick-ass advertisements. Just hit us up at Gmail. It's at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. That's whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Join the team with me, my brother Timothy James, the wizard behind the boards, Cam, the J, and Hey Ed. It's the What's Real team for some advertisers. Hit us up, whatsrealpod at gmail.com today. Vice's smash hit wrestling series, Dark Side of the Ring. You don't just play a character, you inhabit the character. Is back. And we're back, and it is time to go into the world of professional wrestling, specifically the dark side of the ring. Another episode this week, all about Abdullah the Butcher. Uh, born Lawrence Shreve, uh, the man more commonly known as Abdullah the Butcher, grew up in Windsor, Ontario, Canada, one of eight kids in a two-bedroom house. He grew up in poverty and watched both of his parents work very hard to support his family, and it made him dedicated to making money at an early age. Uh Abdullah the Butcher would get various jobs and things to earn money and ended up dropping out of school in the second grade. And 
It would eventually lead him to getting to be into professional wrestling after he was also a karate instructor. Basically, this guy's been a carny his whole fucking life. Um, then he would get into the world of professional wrestling and essentially uh, was built in the old style of the completely insane heels. Uh, somebody that uh, he worked closely with was the original Sheik Ed Farhat in Detroit, Sabu's uncle. Um and this was an era of the heel that was a lot different, I think, than than anything that would come after it. Um, Abdullah the Butcher was somebody that literally scared the shit out of people. And I'm talking about people that didn't even think wrestling was really real. Um, and he was from the era of kayfabe as well, too. Um, he was a big, fat guy, um, but he would bleed everywhere. He would stab you with forks. Uh, and it was pretty much guaranteed that any time he showed up in a match, it would be a bloodbath. Um, he got world famous from appearing on wrestling magazines, just bleeding and dishing that's, out that's punishment. My first introduction personally to Abdullah was the the magazines. Yeah, there's a th- this is kind of a, a lost art, I, I would say at this point, the J, where the wrestling magazines at one point wholly sold people on gore. Um, it was the the brutal aspect of professional wrestling, and there's not not many people that that are in that as much as Abdullah the Butcher was. Uh, Bruiser Brody's from that era. Uh, Carlos Colon's from that era. Uh, these are guys that would regularly show up on magazine covers, just completely covered in blood um, and co- full color photos and everything like that too. So uh, wrestling fans had an image of these guys that uh, before they ever saw them wrestle. And a lot of times these guys' matches would end up in pure chaos. And that's something that people would always remember from going to matches. You know, if you were going to go see Abdullah the Butcher wrestle, it was going to be fucking crazy. Um, And, of course, that's the image that he portrayed for himself forever. Um, You know, he would tape razor blades to his fingers. He was one of the first guys to do that in professional wrestling. Um and of course, he was hated by fans without a doubt. Um, but he's also one of those guys too that I don't think he caught a lot of the shit that your typical heels would have caught back then, solely just due to the fact that people thought he was insane and they were scared of him. Dude, I, I was dying because right off the bat, right off the rip of this episode, of course, you have Mick Foley. Yep, and he talks about you know what we were saying. It was even. For for full you know from Foley's perspective because he's you know younger generation of Abdullah that you had to learn about guys outside your region region via the magazines. Yeah, and he says he would end up putting a photo of Abdullah on his wall in oh, college yeah. and told yep. people that it was his father. And remember, yep. there was like always those weird wrestling rumors with wrestling fans yeah. back in like the nineties where it's like I think that's Mick Foley's father. <laughs> yeah, so Foley caused that himself, I guess, with an urban legend there. Apparently, um, <laughs> that was funny. But it's it makes a lot of sense too, especially when you see the kind of wrestler that Mick Foley would turn into. That it's not that much of a secret that one of his heroes growing up was Abdullah the Butcher. <laughs> of course, um, it, he was extremely popular in Japan. Uh, he made a lot of money off the gimmick itself. He would end up doing commercials, TV shows, video games, even recorded his own album. Yeah, that was which hilarious. they played a little bit from too. And that stuff goes for a lot of money as far as wrestling collectibles go. Um, Abdullah said that he made it so that his mother would never have to work again and also started several businesses, including two restaurants, one in Georgia and one in Japan. 
Um, now, of course, as we mentioned, uh, Abdullah the Butcher bled in his matches quite frequently. Uh, it made him popular, but it also got him into trouble. Um, they show in this this episode a situation with a wrestler named Hannibal, a.k.a. Devin Nicholson, uh, where he would end up giving uh, Hannibal hepatitis C, which is a true story. But it's also uh, it should also be known that Hannibal, um, who's a professional wrestler, who's also uh, a guy who does, he has a fairly popular YouTube channel, is a horrendous piece of shit of a human being. Um, for multiple different reasons, not all pertaining to Abdullah the Butcher. Um, he's telling the truth about that story, but this is a guy that uh, has done a myriad of horrible shit, including brutalizing a referee uh, just a handful of years ago in a match uh, for absolutely no reason at all. Uh, he kind of goes on and on in this about how Abdullah caught him, uh, you know, by giving him hepatitis C, cost him his chance to work with WWE, which is incredibly inflated. Um, he was never going to be a major player with the WWE. He worked there uh, as enhancement talent. I don't know anything for sure about him getting a contract. Um, but, you know, he took Nicholson under his wing, being Abdullah. And, of course, they would go on to feud. Uh, when, by the way, he was, you know, uh, I think he was in his late 60s at the time. Yeah, 68. Um, he would take him to court, and he was awarded $2.3 million in damages. Um, I don't know if that was ever paid or not. No, because um, he talks about that. Because he didn't have the money, most likely, or yeah. he was smart enough to hide it. Um, he's saying now that he's absolutely broke. Uh, they have his caretaker on here talking about how his house is in disrepair. Um, and it's also come out, too, that he can't read or write something that I don't believe, which I was kind of glad they called that out on here with several people saying that, they never knew. Uh, he never had any problems reading menus and things like that in restaurants when they were out, uh, one of which is McFoley. So there's a lot of carny bullshit going on in this one as well with Abdullah, but you can't really have an episode of Dark Side of the Ring about Abdullah the Butcher without that aspect. Um, this is one of the few episodes, too, that we've mentioned uh, in the history of the series where it's not really about anybody dying or passing away. Um, it's kind of the sad state of affairs that he's in now. Um, I do know that he had a divorce at one point where his wife took a lot of his money. Um, but he made a lot of money for a really long time in the business. Uh, and he's had several businesses of his own. So I don't know, you know, he says a lot of people stole from him and shit like that, but I don't know any specific instances of that. Just kind of sounds frankly like he was bad at managing his money. Um, the guy did shoot interviews and autograph signings and things like that that he was paid for for years after he even retired from the business as well. So, you know, it's not like there's not ways for him to make money. He basically charged fans for autographs before almost anybody did. Um, wasn't always the greatest guy to be around. And as I mentioned, he was also a gigantic fucking carny. Um, he would take money from promoters, hold promoters up for money for years. He was also somebody that had a buyer stake in the uh, WWC, uh, which is the Puerto Rican territory that Carlos Colon ran. Um, so the fact that he's broke now doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. It just sounds like, again, some more carny shit involved in all of this as well. And I mean, you're never going to know for sure, but I'm just kind of going off the, you know, everything that I know about Abdullah the Butcher. He's been that way forever.
Well, that's what Hannibal accuses him of hiding his assets in this, you know, because he hasn't been paid a dime of the two point three million. And I, I had mentioned this to you when we briefly talked about after we watched the episode, because as we always know, we're we're kind of a week behind on uh, with the schedule of, of Dark Side of the Ring. That Tony Atlas had said that he shouldn't have been awarded the money, Hannibal. He says yeah. that because uh, his real name's Devin, that Devin should have cut himself as he never left uh, Abdullah because he let Abdullah cut him. And you know, yep. that was the thing too, because Devin was too afraid to cut himself. So, you know, he shouldn't even have been able to sue him in the first place, but then for him to win. But yeah, like you mentioned, the caretaker, they show pictures of the the issues at the house and, and he still claims that he can't read and write and everything. So a lot of mystery there, but whatever. I, I don't feel bad for that Hannibal character from what I know about him. Not no, getting 2.3 million, you know? Yeah. He's a fucking goof. He's a liar and he's a carny piece of shit too. You know, like you said, they, uh, they get into it where you mentioned this, he ends up having his own legal issues because he worked a match with the ref that it was supposed to bleed and he spiked the living shit out of him and went really deep. And they had to get paramedics and everything. And the guy had staples in his head. Yeah, it's it's just gross mutilated. fucking display of, yeah, for no reason. It's just, it's fucking awful shit. Uh, and he's done that too before with other people where he takes liberties with people. It's just a real low life piece of shit that frankly shouldn't be in the business at all. Yeah, that's what Lance, um, Lance Storm talked about it on a podcast because he saw the, the dude with a dozen different gaffes with staples yeah. in his head and he wondered why charges hadn't been pressed and why uh, Devin wasn't in jail saying damn near killed the guy because you were sloppy. There's no place in the, in the industry for that anymore. Yeah. And it's a shame that this guy would even get booked when he, when he was, cause he, sh- he didn't deserve to be in a wrestling ring. He's completely unprofessional. Um, he might have some mental deficiencies as well. Um, I can't confirm or deny that. I'm just judging from what I've seen with him talking and things like that. It's just that there's a lot of weird shit with this. And it's just that's, again, part of the dark side of the ring episode here, because this guy has such a big aspect now in Abdullah the Butcher's career, which, frankly, doesn't even deserve to have that. So um, but that's the way the wrestling business is, man. There's just a lot of weird shit with people and it kind of crosses paths in places where you wouldn't think that it would. And uh, Abdullah the Butcher's no, uh, you know, outlier to that. He's one of the true outlaws of professional wrestling is still one of those people never went to wwe um didn't you know wrestle a lot for the major promotions and managed to make a career out of this for himself and he did wrestle for the better part of 50 years so um you know kudos to him on that but he's one of the all-time classic cult characters of professional wrestling for a lot of different reasons and again not a bad episode nothing too out of bounds here that i didn't really know about just it was interesting hearing from his family and stuff like that uh, but, uh, you know, not not one of the best of the season, I would say. It was a decent episode, but nothing mind-blowing. One of the first time, the, the first time that I saw him wrestle was when I rented the video cassette of WCW um, House. What was that match called? It, it, oh, that, that Halloween Havoc. Havoc, the cage match. Yeah, yeah with and the he, electric he got, chair. He got fake electrocuted. It was just. Typical, especially WCW of the time, wrestling cheesiness. But, you know, as a kid, you get a kick out of it. Uh, but that was the first time I saw him. Uh, just regarding rounding out the lawsuit, hey, Ed, there is in um, Abdullah's favor since the lawsuit was in a civil trial and he was only found liable and not guilty. 
it's kind of the same thing that happened to OJ Simpson when he was found guilty. But you still got to pay though. Yeah, you do still got to pay, but who who knows how how that whole thing will play out. And yeah, the only other thing worth mentioning, you, you were kind of running it down, hey Ed, that he was able to be this kind of outlaw character for 50 years, but he did get inducted into the WWE Hall of Fame in 2011. So yep, uh, he, he still has that accolade on top of everything else. So, but I, I'm with you. It wasn't the, one of the complete standout ones, but as always, uh, just love Dark Side of the Ring. Uh, as we say, even the worst episode is, is still entertaining to me, and this one was still. Uh, decent all things considered with a bunch of interesting parts so I, I i enjoyed it absolutely so join us on next week's episode where we're going to take a look at the another episode of dark side of the ring all about bam bam bigelow so i'm definitely looking forward to that one i know you are too the J. so we'll be breaking that down next week here on the podcast but we are up against our final commercial break of the show and whenever we come back we're going to wrap things up and talk some goofs so stay tuned for that and much more We'll be back right after this, right here on the What's Real Podcast. It's live professional wrestling with the International Wrestling Cartel. The IWC returns to Elizabeth, Pennsylvania with three hard-hitting steel cage matches. The IWC Cage Fury has been one of the most popular events in all of independent professional wrestling, and they're doing it once again on August 12th. Titles and careers will be on the line inside of the 15-foot-high steel cage. That is Saturday, August 12th at Mark's Court Time in Elizabeth, Pennsylvania. To get your tickets, go to iwcwrestling.com. Hey everybody, this is Herman James for the What's Real Podcast, and I'm here to just let you know to welcome you to Goofs or Geeks. And we're back, and it's that time once again. So the J, what do we got this week on the goof front? So you just saw my hijinks down here at the lagoon. I was just riding our beluga whale. That's the first time I did that, and I pulled it off. So, man, I'm like all pumped up from adrenaline now. Hey, you better calm the fuck down, man. Out here riding whales. Man, there goes... Give a little pet there to our anteater, Riley, Ridley, who's huge. Still getting big and growing, hey, Eel. So Jeez. we're starting things off with a insane story here. I couldn't wait to get your take on it. And I'm going to okay. shoot you the, uh, the picture of this young lady uh, after I throw out the initial story. But from People.com, a Miami area mom was charged following, uh, following an attempt to hire a hitman to kill her three-year-old son. Wonderful. Like, did she give birth to uh, Damien from The Exorcist? A doubtful. All right, here's here's the photo. We'll get your reaction uh, live on the air as if, uh, as I always ask you, you would make love to ear or not. Okay. So here we go. This is uh, making for great radio right now. As the, as the great philosopher Frank Drebin said, who's the broad? She take one in the face. Yeah, it looks like she got hit in the face with a shovel. <laughs> yeah. Old so, shovel face. So over you here. would think about making love to her? Or? No, but nah. she was probably gonna. She was gonna hire a hitman to kill her three year old son and bury him using her face. <laughs> yeah, and on top of on top of it all, she allegedly contacted a parody murder for hire website <laughs> to solicit. You mean as to, as to opposed to a real murder for hire website, right? <laughs> yeah. Jesus Christ. I mean, she's 18, so, like, I get it. But, like, yeah, you're still a fucking idiot. Yeah. I, you know, and this is a, another reason, like, we don't get into politics here, but 
not letting women, you know, make their own decisions for their body and abortion. I mean, sometimes, yeah, sometimes there's a reason. Mm-hmm. So that's that's that. But yeah, good way to start off. Goofs or goofs, one seventy three. Next, next up is as we love the crazy weird creatures here on the what's real podcast and, and this one's a, a complete doozy it's the doomsday or fish have you heard about this hey Ed? i have not okay I, thank I sent god you this this article it's a massive sea serpent that has historically been seen in japan as a messenger of disaster with people across the globe linking it to seismic events it looks like a miniature version of the fucking creatures from Tremors. Yeah. Yeah. Because that's what I was thinking of. I'm like, you know, I'm not saying if, if I'm swimming and I get attacked by it, but if I'm prepared, I think I could take it out. I don't know, More man. Fish. Like, I don't, I honestly don't know enough about it. Meanwhile, it's like, you know, I take this out. And it's like, I know you can't. They can actually uh, put 47,000 volts of electricity through your body. And you're like, oh, yeah, never mind. Yeah, that's true. It, it can grow beyond 50 feet and are considered the longest bony fish. That's why you want to you want to fight it. Of course. The bony fish. You know the J. Always ornery. As my, love uh, love my, bones. My, one of my highest paid t-shirts. <laughs> my most popular shirt. Um, um ornery. Always ornery. <laughs> Next up, we talked about this before, but it was worth revisiting because it's a, a legit news story now and it's hilarious. That is the cocaine sharks move over cocaine bear as they are feasting on drugs dumped off the Florida coast, according to scientists. And this is a, a real story. Yeah. I mean, that's, I'm surprised. Yeah. Honestly, this has probably been going on for fucking 40 years. So let's just be honest. Like there's, it isn't the first time sharks encountered cocaine. I just said most you this, of the uh, water in Florida is probably made from cocaine check, at this point. Check out this picture. I, I sent <laughs> cocaine bear and shark collab and there's a, a grizzly bear on a shark and a wave and the grizzly bear has a machine gun. <laughs> yeah, that's the world I want to live in. Yeah, for sure. Uh, this next story is pretty crazy. Uh, now, that's something I'd have to see to believe at Trippy X Brie. She is the only fans model who broke the world record. And and it was through Guinness for the longest live streamed orgasm. So what do you think of Trixie hate you or Trippy? I have no idea who the fuck this is. Did you send this one to me or no? Yeah. Okay, I didn't get it yet then. Yeah, there it is. I mean she has a she has a badonka. Yeah, I mean, okay, how long was it? Fifty seven forty one. Jesus. Yeah, it's like, come on, Trippy, you can make it th- less than three more minutes to an hour. I mean, seriously, wouldn't you die if you had like a straight hour long fucking orgasm? Yeah, and like, what if you're in the room with her? I mean, you're, I would. You're like talking to her. And she's just yeah, it's like, like, would you shut the fuck up already? Jesus Christ. Yeah. Talking like, about comments, you know? Yeah, like, and talk about going. <laughs> yeah. You could go with me or you could come with her, but it's going to be a while. Jesus. She's like eating a whopper halfway through. Well, the energy. Oh. Hold on. Send this one over to you real quick. I could see why. Where'd Give you me a fucking kidding me to Twitter. Okay. Jesus. Oh, yeah, wow. not yeah, not bad. <laughs> I spy something wet. Yeah, me yeah, too. She's doing kegels. Jesus. Wow. That just that gave me energy here in the witching hour. Hey, yeah. yeah I and we that. need it. 
Yep, bad. The adrenaline's wearing off from the whale ride. But yeah, yeah I sent this to you. <laughs> this is our, our story of the week that we've been doing here on Goose or Goose. So approximately 300 feet beneath the surface of the earth, the denizens of the historic subterranean city of Darankuyu relished lives that were equally enriching as the ones experienced above ground. So do you see this picture, Hey Ed? It's a civilization all underground in the earth. It, it was in Turkey and boasted amenities such as wine and oil presses, dining rooms, chapels, and stables. Notably, there was a dedicated religious school for children and a church intricately carved into the rock Ensuring the well-being of its inhabitants, a ventilation shaft measuring 180 feet provided a continuous supply of oxygen and water to those residing below. So this could be an idea that we could throw at Nuck, I was thinking, because you know how it gets up here half the time. We don't even want to be here. So it's like now we, we, we can live in a city underground. And it goes into correlation with Day of the Dead, too, in the bunker. Oh, and it also goes into correlation with the, the old-ass movie that we bring up every single day for no reason. Bad Ronald. Yep, exactly. <laughs> Living in the Just earth in instead the wall. of the walls. Yeah, why not, right? Because <laughs> I, I told you there's a new movie called Cobweb coming out that's it's about somebody living in the walls or some something. It's creating its own subgenre. Hey, yeah, what can you say? One, People got to go day do something else other than zombie movies here. One, one day we're all going to be living in the walls. Exactly. Hopefully. Some days I want to live in the walls. Yeah, that's exactly what I meant. <laughs> this, this dude truly wants to live in the walls. A Texas man loses both arms and part of his feet after a single flea bite. Jesus. Can you believe that, Hale? No. I'd love to know why, so it never happens to me. Yeah, I think it's uh, typhus. It's spread by fleas that are infected with bacteria. So the fleas can be found on rats, cats, opossums, and other animals. And, uh, you know, it's similar to other diseases such as the fluid, flu. And, uh, yeah, it can just fuck up your limbs, I guess. So, it can fuck up your limbs. <laughs> <laughs> like, sorry. He's like, I just got bit by a flea, right? They're like, yeah, but we're definitely going to have to cut You're off your arms and part of your feet. Yeah, but your limbs are fucked. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks, doctor. That's very professional. A man dubbed the Easter Bunny is going to take us home. Hey, Ed, he was dubbed the Easter Bunny by police and has been sentenced to 18 months in jail. Why? What's his crime, you ask, hey, Eel? He's giving stole, kids eggs. He stole 200,000 chocolate eggs. From where? <laughs> On February 11th, 32-year-old Joby Poole stole $40,000 worth of Cadbury cream eggs after breaking into an industrial unit and making off with the haul in a stolen truck. Okay. The milk chocolate eggs filled with a quote-unquote yolk of yellow and white fondant yolk. have a cult following in the UK and are exclusively sold around the Easter period. But yeah, this idiot, I guess he thought he was going to sell them on the dark web in the black market. It was an extravagant theft, the police joke. Oh, of course it was. <laughs> Eggstravagant. Nice to see that the cops think it's hilarious. Yeah, like this idiot. Because they like caught him, and instead of getting shot at, he's just throwing Cadbury eggs at them. They're like, oh, okay, this ain't bad. Yeah, this is much better than gunfire. <laughs> exactly. Jesus. But as I say to my brohama from another Momama, between moms hiring hitmen to kill their three-year-olds, sea serpents and impending doom, cocaine sharks, long orgasms, the underground city of Darren Caillou, the Easter Bunny robber, and losing your limbs from a flea bite, goofs are goofs.
Well, that's about it for us this week here on the show. I uh, hope you guys enjoyed the program. Thank you for listening. If you did listen, if you didn't, go fuck yourself. Uh, of course, you can listen to us each and every week on all of your favorite podcasting platforms, such as Apple, iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Google Podcasts, and ChurchillPictures.com. If you're listening on iTunes, feel free to give us a five-star review. helps out the algorithm and gets more eyes and ears on the program. If you have something you'd like to add to the show, you can do so through email at whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Again, that is whatsrealpod at gmail.com. Uh, shout out to our producer, Cam, for all the hard work he puts into the show. Because as we know here on the program, nobody beats the whiz. And the J, Clang Clang. Clang Clang. Still defending the tag team podcasting championships of the universe. We're still undefeated. Never going to lose these motherfuckers. You know how it goes. Three and a half years running. So that's about it for us this week. But before we get out of here, here the Jay revving it up. So the Jay, take it away. Oh, I'm truly revving it up this week. I'm revving it up down to the, back down to the lagoon to ride our beluga because that was a blast. I'm going to close out my night, get a nice whale ride in, shower, and get ready for bed. That's the plan. All the shout outs. Love the show to our producer, the one and only wizard behind the boards himself. Thanks for what you do, Cam. That consistent, constant, weekly 16K sound. All you, brother, and we appreciate you. My bro ham, hey, thanks for what you do as well. I love escaping with you. It's always a blast cracking up, doing our thing here in the world of the What's Real podcast. To those listening, love you. We got Nux working in the back. We got big things coming to the What's Real podcast. So stick with us for the ride. Stay safe. Stay healthy out there. You'll hear the J next week. So that's it for us this week here on episode 173. Don't forget to join us next week for episode 174 and beyond. So stay safe, stay healthy, and we will see you here next week on the What's Real Podcast. What's real? What's real?